my uncle that I've been close to all my life recently went to a lawyer and rewrote his will to give most of his estate to a nice young man who's been mowing his lawn this past summer. I'm not sure he understood what he intended to do or the consequences of it. I think I should perhaps talk with a lawyer about it, but keep listening to learn how an expert in capacity assessment might help resolve this issue. Welcome to Capacity Conversations, your thoughts or mine, a podcast about capacity and decision-making in Canada presented by the Capacity Clinic. I'm Malcolm Maxwell, Chair of the Advisory Board at the Capacity Clinic. Each day, Canadian professionals face a growing numbers of vulnerable adults or their substitute decision makers. This growth stresses historical practices for assuring capacity when important decisions are being made. The pandemic has given us a glimpse of the future where the numbers of elderly clients, their mobility considerations, and the need for professional diligence in determining capacity are all growing. Issues requiring legal and clinical support arise frequently, and that's where we come in. At Capacity Clinic, our mission is to improve supported decision-making and capacity evaluation. We do this by creating Canadian expertise and intellectual property, designing and developing educational programming, and supplying individual consultations from leading experts. In this podcast, we'll dive into all aspects of capacity and decision-making so that you know what to do if you're working with, know, or are someone in need of a capacity evaluation. Let's get started. Welcome back to Capacity Conversations. Today, we have the Capacity Clinic Advisory Board member, Dr. Arlen Pache, back with us on the podcast, as well as the Capacity Clinic's Chief Executive Officer, Nathan Spalling. In this episode, we'll be chatting with Arlen and Nathan about the role of expert witnesses in capacity cases. Welcome, Arlen and Nathan. Hello, Malcolm. Thanks. Uh, let's, let's jump right into this. When uh, an expert uh, advisor is is required. There's often some some contest or difference of perspectives underlying that need. If I go back to days that I spent in the hospital world, one of the most difficult situations that would arise in families is a often an elderly patient who might be discharged from hospital, but differences of opinion within the family in terms of uh, how they might safely and appropriately live post-discharge. I'm assuming that in circumstances where you're engaged as an expert witness, there's there's often a difference, either a difference with respect to ex- executing a legal document or a, a difference within the family uh, in terms of what uh, a, an aging parent might appropriately be able to do. Could you give us some example of the background color or the circumstances that you see commonly where a capacity uh, assessment is required? Yeah, that's a great question, Malcolm. I'm often brought in when there is a dispute or there is a contentious ethical situation that requires someone with some additional expertise or additional clinical background. I seem to be brought to the different hospitals in my area where I live as well as across different provinces, when there is disagreement between potential experts 
disagreement between different clinicians about someone's capacity. And then I've been, I've been asked by the courts often to provide an additional opinion, taking in consideration different viewpoints, family members might be in contest, or there's a very serious ethical issue at play, such as someone wanting to leave the hospital and the family knows that they're going to increase and go right to using alcohol or different substances again. Do they have the mental capacity, the cognitive abilities to understand and appreciate the risks of being discharged to their health, their cognition, to their brain functioning, if they're going to go and use again? Mm. So that's one example. Um, and it's a very common. But from my perspective, it's often a dispute between family or a dispute between clinicians, and then they ask for my services at that point. As, as Ireland just points out, there's often a, a lot of discussion and debate that goes on before people arrive in court together uh, in a care facility, in a, in a treatment program, around a, a will or a contract. Could each of you comment on how experts contribute to problems being resolved before the problem gets to court. Yeah, it's always important when you talk about these disputes, there's a difference between disputes where a person is still alive and potentially party to the dispute. Uh, and then there's uh, situations where the medical expert will give that retrospective where the uh, person may be deceased and you have a documentation trail to review and, and form a likely capable or likely incapable opinion uh, opinion on but as a process disputes really i like to make them uh, akin to being a train on a tracks and you're starting at one station and you're progressing towards the ultimate destination which most people would view as trial but not all disputes start with statements of claim and what I've seen from a cost benefit analysis, people going through these types of disputes, the more time you can spend understanding your differences before you get into those formal litigation, litigious types of forms, it really saves the parties a tremendous amount of time and expense and uh, stress. Uh, uh, it's, it's a very stressful process uh, as well. So if if you can use the different agreed experts which the court can appoint an expert and the parties can retain their own experts and i think it's important to make sure you understand and agree on what you disagree with uh as quickly as uh, uh it is you know just jumping into something formal without understanding the alternative routes that can give the parties a similar type of resolution and satisfaction Mm. Arlen, have you had, excuse me, that experience as well of a situation where the parties need some clarity of what's at stake and how uh, how capacity plays into that? And, and if if those things are done, an issue may be resolved without, uh, without trial? I should be very clear on the point that a vast majority of files that I provide an opinion on, an expert opinion on, they settle well before court well before trial. And I think my role within this can be extremely helpful to facilitate that process. You know, the expert's role in this case is to provide a clear, nonpartisan opinion 
that can be of assistance, not just the course, but to everybody that's party to this. So that's really a paramount aspect of my role is that clarity and opinion. And the expert, you know, I've reviewed hundreds of reports of other experts. And over the years, the feedback that I've really integrated is provide your opinion, provide your rationale in a manner which is so understandable a layperson can, can readily just pick up on the nuances of it. And that really assists the courts, really assists the players in this case. I should just mention as a quick aside, Malcolm, that, you know, the triggers for capacity, you know, if you look at some of the educational modules the Capacity Clinic is putting out, and I'm involved with, and Nathan's involved with as well, the triggers for capacity sometimes evaporate after an expert gets involved. Because an expert's role within a the field of capacity is also to help look at informal solutions to issues before it really gets to trial, before even a capacity evaluation is completed. So the expert should know about you know, what could be, the, be a potential trigger of a capacity evaluation and investigate at ways to mitigate a potential trigger. If the trigger can't be mitigated, then a capacity evaluation is typically warranted or could be warranted. I'm thinking for our, our listeners who uh, don't have a, a clinical background, but they, in in their work or in their their personal lives, uh, know nurses or occupational therapists, psychologists, family doctors, uh, others who, as part of their their daily clinical work, meet people, uh, appraise how they're doing, make decisions about how to to work with that person in terms of treatment and particularly in the case of of physicians uh, making sure that there's capacity when they're proposing a, a course of treatment uh, to a, a patient I think it would be helpful to try and explore this difference between the people in quite a large number of clinical disciplines who have an understanding of capacity and its importance in individual decision-making compared to forming an expert opinion as to whether someone has the capacity in a particular situation to undertake a particular action. And the two tend to blur together in the, in the minds of those of us who aren't deeply immersed in this. Can Arlen, maybe that's uh, I also like to give you particularly difficult questions, so I, I'll, I'll <laughs> offer that one to you. So I think everybody needs to have a very sound understanding of their clinical boundaries and their ethics as a clinician. There's a wide range of training that is involved within the field of capacity. I've trained upwards of 2,000 different clinicians over the course of my career, from geriatric psychiatrists down to, not down to, quote-unquote, but a wide range of allied health professionals as well. Social workers, nurses, nurse practitioners, other psychologists, um, occupational therapists, et cetera. And to become an expert in the field of capacity, in my opinion, you just need to delve into the work very consistently and not just dabble. That's a big difference for me. Mm -hmm. The people who dabble, to be very polite, often get slayed in court. 
They often just don't have the background, the clinical expertise. They don't have the language to operationalize terms on the tip of their tongue. So for me, that's the difference. People who dabble typically shouldn't be, you know, maybe take some of the more straightforward capacity evaluations, but stick in your wheelhouse. Yes. If you really know brain injury, maybe you shouldn't be doing the dementia file, et cetera. So from my perspective, every clinician needs to do that self-monitoring, that self-appraisal before delving into certain fields of capacity. Again, in the hospital world, very often clinical professionals are are seeking to answer a specific questions. Can this person get consent to treatment or not? And it, uh, as I came to understand a little more about capacity issues, uh, the the question of capacity being specific to time and place and specific to the decision being made is a little bit different than making a decision only in a hospital and only about the question of whether you have capacity to consent to treatment. In the training that you've done with other professionals, has that been part of the area you felt was necessary to explore? Yeah, we often talk about the differences between hospital-based assessments and community-based assessments. And sometimes it's a very gray area. Some people can talk it, but not walk it. We see that all the time. And Nathan, I think there was something else you wanted to pipe in on. Well, I, uh, Arlen, I just wanted to revisit what you had mentioned about a very key concept, which is almost hard to swallow if you're if you're being honest with yourself, but an important one nonetheless, and that's the professional boundary. Mm. I think as professionals, you naturally want to help people, financial advisors, lawyers, you know, you can, you name it. And you don't want to look like you don't have the answers or want your client to go somewhere for the answer. And, and, and that, uh, that, that's the difficulty with the term that you said, the professional boundary. And, and instead of looking at that as any sort of shortcoming, acknowledging it takes a very long time to acquire the types of skills and expertise that, you know, somebody at the one end of an expert witness might be looked at to have. It's more about supplementing that with different professionals that can help you either from a training perspective or servicing your client perspective. And I just didn't want to uh, lose sight of that when certainly in, in the context of part of this podcast, you see the expert witness in focus and and they seem to have all the answers but again even expert witnesses can have their own specialty that is what the issue the court's trying to resolve is focused on yeah great comment you've both spoken about the way an expert can add value to the process in court but also before court and the circumstances that, that we discuss around capacity are often very difficult ones. But I, I'd like to ask each of you to give a circumstance where a situation that began as a difficult debate, uncertainty, conflict around an individual's capacity was assisted by the presence of an expert to uh, uh, a good conclusion for that family or for that individual who was, was seeking an action. Arlen, Nathan, any, do you have any fa favorite anecdotes that barring confidentialities can be, can be shared? 
I was uh, I was gonna say it's that is the challenging part of a lawyer's obligation, a paralegal's obligation, is the being bound by solicitor-client confidentiality and the process of an evaluation, of course, including your client's agreement to participate in it. You know, I come at this from a planning perspective, which is where my experiences typically come from. And it's very difficult to know the perfect time to introduce a third party to that process. So again, the value of having somebody such as Dr. Pache, where you can reach out to in advance of the meeting to say, hey, Dr. Pache, how can dementia impact my client's decision making? You know, how do I know if it's a good day or a bad day? What am I looking for in the meeting? And that that brief consultation for the professional is, is exceptionally valuable to guard that because when we're when we're talking about this grand concept of the litigious party, you know, try to visualize that person in your head. And when you sit there, I have to tell you, you could picture your own image as quickly as anybody else's because they look exactly like yourself or your neighbor, it's the strange facts of life that are pulling against a point in time and a decision that have no amicable resolution. And sometimes that's worth fighting over using litigious forms such as court or arbitration. And for me, it's maybe hard to picture the person in the time that it saved them a lot of dollars, but it's ultimately for lawyers, the confidence to say, Every person that walks out of the room, you feel confident when they give you that instruction that they had the requisite capacity to do what they intended to, or, you know, how are you going to support them by bringing in capacity evaluators, which I've dealt with in many occasions, which quickly give that confidence to supplement an area that could have otherwise been been getting blown out of water. And, and as a practice tip, Canvassing those factors with your clients in advance is so critical. Is this part of or likely part of conflict or ongoing litigation? A prevention message to to address these things very early in the process. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, from my perspective, Malcolm, I just wanted to kind of provide a bit of a scenario where it was very clinically fulfilling and very fruitful for all involved, be it family from a capacity perspective, as well as the client. I commonly consult to care facilities, long-term care facilities. Mm -hmm. And there was a file I was involved in where there was a significant query of a dementia process that, that the referral source said that the person was unable to engage in medical and financial decision-making due to the severity of their dementing process. Mm -hmm. I go in and assess this person in long-term care, and they're in, their, in a private room, fortunately, but up above the, or actually in this case, adjacent to the bed, there was a whiteboard, and on the whiteboard, what was scribed, what was written on this whiteboard? It said, I am not demented, written down by this patient oh, on the dear. whiteboard, <laughs> right? It was a fantastic case when I got into it with, with him in this matter. The issues were he had lost his hearing aids, his dentures were malfitting, they were horrible, they were clacking around like that, you could barely understand them. And he was a bit of an ornery guy to start with, 
So if you get into it with him, he's going to shut down or maybe tell you off. And that's just how he always was. So what did they do? Labeled him with a dementing process and started the process of wanting to remove his decisional autonomy. It was a very rewarding case because after engaging him, he was very strong cognitive, cognitively, despite his 86 years, 87 years, somewhere in that range. It was a fantastic file from his perspective, very educational for staff, as well as family as well. So I just want to leave with that. It's a... It's also a powerful example of the use of the whiteboard for, for resident communication. Too. Very much. Yes. I think we've, uh, we've touched on the expert witness uh, in supporting the court, the differentiation of expert witnesses from others, and, uh, and some of the different points in the process where expert witnesses can add value for, for individuals, uh, for their families. Are there, are there other points around the role of the expert witness that either of you think we should touch upon? I would be interested, Dr. Bechet, for you to elaborate more on the role of the expert witness. And to be clear, the expert witness typically gives an opinion of capacity or incapacity, but as it relates to undue influence, it's limited to the susceptibility or vulnerability to undue influence. And as a practitioner, as, as a planning practitioner, I always thought it would be helpful to understand a little bit more than that. What am I looking for in the meeting in terms of indicia or how can that impact my client's decision-making for me to explore later on in the meeting? Yeah, I'm, I'm often called upon to opine upon factors that could render someone at an increased risk to being taken advantage of, be it from a contemporaneous perspective or from a retrospective perspective. You know, it's I commonly feel call, phone calls from and emails from counsel, different lawyers saying, well, he's coming in or she's coming in for the assessment. And there were some red flags when I looked at the file. And my rule in this case is to review what those red flags could be. For example, if you know some planners have a very advantageous position of knowing people over time, which is fantastic. Maybe they've done their, this is their third will they're drafting. They've known them for 14 years, et cetera. That's a great position to be in because then you can see if there's been behavior changes over time. Maybe they're much more irritable. Maybe they're much more impulsive. Maybe they're coming in Instead of coming in with their spouse, now they're coming in and being driven by someone brand new. And maybe there's, they ask that person to sit in the room with you when they've never had anybody sit in before. There's behavioral changes at play. And further, the, my role is to provide examples of potential cognitive issues which increase their risk. Increased cognitive impairment equates to increased, increased vulnerability to influence increased gullibility. If someone's had a stroke and that's been identified, my role as an expert is to help the, you know, be the courts or maybe a drafting lawyer understand, well, a stroke in this part of the brain could be re resulting in certain vulnerabilities, certain gullibilities for this person. Maybe their expression has changed and their ability to express themselves has changed. Maybe you need to communicate in a different manner, but overall, you know, an expert's 
ability, in this case, be myself, Dr. Shulman, et cetera, really assists in what are the red flags that should raise your eyebrows to say, hmm, something's going on potentially. Maybe they're being coerced. Maybe they're at increased vulnerability to being coerced. Or maybe the influence is due. Maybe it's very positive influence and they're benefiting from it in their in supporting them in making decisions. And I would pick up to say when when the planning lawyer having that information in advance of the first meeting or potentially second meeting, it certainly puts you in a better position to know what areas to probe in the meeting so that should the situation arise uh, where something gets contested, you're just in a better position to be able to defend why that transaction or instruction moved uh, moved ahead, which, again, it's easy to think of the, the legal context of this, but surely applying across any industry that would be taking instructions from clients that have a different benefactor or risks at play. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. Someone's a significant shift in values and beliefs and prior decision-making processes is another large red flag as well, of course. So we've we've heard how expert witnesses function at trial as an assistant uh, to the court. Dr. Pache's commented on the role of of clinical experts in the further education of other health professionals who who deal with uh, capacity in various ways in their regular uh, clinical work. Nathan's comments about the planning and preparatory process that lawyers go through have shown how there's value for early consultations on process and red flags with experts and also the role of of experts in helping resolve conflicts through either a retrospective assessment or a contemporaneous assessment. I hope these these comments have helped our listeners, whether they're in law or uh, uh, a financial service or a real estate business, uh, gain some insights into how the use of the clinical experts can help them as they navigate their own decisions in relation to capacity and and conflicts that arise from those. I'd like to thank our guests, uh, Nathan Spalling, the CEO of the Capacity Clinic, and Dr. Arlen Pache for being with us and for, uh, for sharing your experiences. And thank you also to our listeners for tuning in. And be sure to check back for our next episode. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Capacity Conversations. For more information, please visit us at www.capacityclinic.ca, on Instagram at capacity underscore clinic, and on Facebook and LinkedIn. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know by leaving a rating and review. And remember to subscribe so that you know when to catch our next episode. Please join us in this conversation about serving older Canadians better. Today, we explored various aspects of the role of the expert and the expert witness in capacity assessment. Join us in two weeks' time for the final episode for this season of Capacity Conversations, when we will examine another aspect of capacity issues.